0: So in the classical tradition, they often ask the question of what role athletics can play in the good life. And typically the way it is described is that it has a role in character development in sort of helping us to be more well-ordered such that we can flourish long-term. But they also express kind of like a concern that if you are having like an outsized focus on athletics that it can be bad both physically for your constitution but also for your character like there are ways of participating in sport that don't form you in the right way and so i've wondered about my relationship with running in terms of the sort of life that i want to have in terms of the sort of life that's suited to what it means to be a human and flourish and i just don't think sports has been really an unqualified good in my own formation. I mean, there are certain qualities that are reinforced that are not like I mean envy is the big example that I give or you know, a kind of intemperance, like having an outsized affection for sport that crowds out other features of my life or doesn't make me a good member of my community. So, in asking the question of what flourishing is, like what a good life would be constituted of. I've started to inspect the role that running has on my life, and I don't know how well, at least in the dosage that I do it in, in ultra running. I don't know if it really supports that kind of life.
1: up everyone that was sabrina little i'm your host mario fraioli and you're listening to the morning shakeout podcast Every week on this show, I glean insight and inspiration from athletes, coaches, creative professionals, and others through long-form conversations that are a bit different from the ones that you'll hear elsewhere. In addition to the podcast, I publish a weekly newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, where you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a roundup of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to lately. Subscribe today at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll start receiving it next week. Okay, Sabrina Little. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while now, and I'll just say this. It was awesome. Sabrina is an amazing human being. She's a wife and a new mom. She's a full-time professor of philosophy and the humanities at Moorhead State University in Kentucky. She writes my favorite column for I Run Far called The Examined Run, and she's also a heck of a runner in her own right. Sabrina has won five U.S. titles. She's represented the United States five times at international championships. She was the silver medalist at the 2013 World 24-Hour Championships, helping the U.S. win a team gold at that event. She previously held American records for 24 hours and 200K, and she finished 12th at the 2018 Trail World Championships in Spain to help the U.S. team take a bronze medal. In this conversation, we talked about how running came into her life, running her first 100 miler as a freshman in college as a grand gesture to her mom, who was in remission from ovarian cancer at the time, and how she eventually got into competitive ultra running and representing the U.S. at an international level. We also talked a bit of philosophy, why that field of study piqued her interest in college, how and where philosophy and running intersect for Sabrina, including how she quote-unquote reordered her loves after becoming a mom a little over a year ago, how she thinks about competition, and a lot more. A big thank you to New Balance for supporting this episode of the podcast. Their fuel cell line are their fastest shoes for any occasion, whether you're racing, working out, or just running hard for the hell of it. I want to tell you about the new Fuel Cell Rebel V2. It is hands down my favorite running shoe right now. It is so fun to run in. I've been using them for all of my speed workouts, both on the roads and on the track, and I am hooked. The best way I can describe the Fuel Cell Rebel V2 is lively. The shoe is super light, it's incredibly responsive, and offers good protection underneath my feet. I think it's the perfect workout shoe, and I've been using it all the time. Check it out today. At newbalance.com and consider adding a pair to your rotation. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. Man, I just love these sunglasses. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super fun. They come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece, which makes them way more appealing than those expensive shades that you're almost guaranteed to crush or lose. So, if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair, or two, or maybe three of Gooders, and head over to Gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. Okay, please enjoy my uninterrupted conversation with Sabrina Little. Let's just start by catching me up on where you're at right now. What's going on in your world these days?
0: Yeah, so I live in Moorhead, Kentucky, and I'm a professor of philosophy here. Uh, The semester just started. I just finished my second full week, and I'm still training. I'm I have a one-year-old daughter, and so I'm trying to get back to where I was before. It's been a, kind of a long, frustrating process, but I think I'm starting to gain traction and see glimpses of where I was before.
1: What have been some of the biggest challenges in the past a year, year and a half through the pandemic?
0: So, I mean, there have been lots of, in my two worlds, I think there have been different struggles. So in, in campus life, just trying to navigate all of the difficulty of figuring out whether we should be in classrooms and wearing masks and um, just adjusting pedagogy, I think, like, teaching behind a microphone so you can be distanced from your students. Like there have been a lot of struggles um, and things there. And then in terms of running, I think, well, there were lots of races that were canceled. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was kind of nice in that it overlapped with my return from having my child. And so I didn't feel like I was missing out as much because a lot of the events that I would have wanted to go to weren't weren't happening. Um, So that was kind of nice. And then as things have reopened, I've had to think through what's good for my family and my unvaccinated daughter and trying to make good decisions there um, as things open up again and shut down again and wherever we are at this moment.
1: How do you envision moving forward, raising a young daughter, but also teaching full time while simultaneously trying to get back to a very high level as an athlete?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. It's something I'm still, I guess, working through. I think a lot of the conversations around having a child at least that are had in the athletic world, have to do with um, the physical process of it. Like mm-hmm. It's a lot of physical therapy and whatever to get your body back. But I think what I wasn't anticipating was sort of the reordering of loves that happens with having a child. And so, I mean, prioritizing time with her is more important now. Um, and yeah, and I just didn't even know. I didn't know to anticipate that. I think oftentimes when people have a child and, and maybe decide to leave the sport, I would look at those scenarios and maybe feel bad for them. Like, Oh, so sad that they have to like give up this great thing. But I was seeing it through the lens of, you know, the, I mean, life pre-child and Mm -hmm. and not realizing that they might have an alternative vision for what's good and worthwhile and and investing time in. So I'm trying to figure out, like, I really truly believe that I can be a good athlete and that it's a calling for me and I can be a good academic and that's also a calling. But I would be dishonest if I (laughs) didn't say that my higher allegiance is to raising this daughter and um, helping form her and, and give her every advantage that she deserves.
1: Let's dig into that reordering of love. I I love that concept as you just said it. Um, One, what do you mean by that? And then two, pre-being a mother and having your daughter, what was the order of love in your life and how has it shifted since?
0: Yeah, so I guess the concept of order of loves um, is one that I'm getting from Augustine. Um, he talks about order, ordo amoris, um, and it's not. So the idea is it's not that little temporal things um, don't have their place in your life. Like you can care about, you can love a lot of things on earth, and you really should. But there are, there's a certain priority proper to those loves, and so. I mean, sport is something that's kind of a... It should be secondary to the people in my life that I'm supposed to love really well. And so, I don't know, in having this child, she's become like the more important love to me. And then everything else has fallen into line. And the only other time this has really happened in my life was when I got married. Because, I mean, I used to just love to run all the time. And I put in insane mileage. And then there was this person who... I wanted to spend time with, and then he slipped into the higher role, um, and running fell beneath. So now it's happened again.
1: Is that reordering something that happens naturally or have there been challenges as those pieces have kind of filled different roles in your life?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there are some ways in which it's been natural, Mm -hmm. um, Like suddenly this person is here, and in the beginning, you can't really do anything except for care for the person, and so your world just moves around, you know, she's the center of the world, but then also I think it's something that you kind of work through, and I've, so I recently had a friend get married, and she was asking what the process of, like, what is it like to be married to a person, and I was saying, well, it's something that happens to you immediately, but it takes years to work through like becoming the partner to that person. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of like continually reckoning with that role and like waking up and choosing that role and leaning into that role. And so I'd say like having a child is similar. There are ways in which you're immediately confronted with this reality that like wrinkles around the central, central person. But then I don't know, I've, I've had to figure out where the rest of my life fits in pieces around there. And I think someone who's been an exemplar in this respect is Mike wardian, interestingly. Uh, he's he talks about invisible training, like ways of making mm-hmm. his training not the not like the like not like the furniture of his life, but the crevices between the furniture of his life. Um, like the space between the couches, like, so that it's not something that is immediately, it's not the big elephant in the room. It's just something that you you work in so that it has as little disruption to your family as possible. And that's what I've been trying to do. So running at nap times or running before my daughter wakes up or um, after she goes to bed so that my husband doesn't have to shoulder that load
1: In terms of the role that that running plays in your life, um, you've talked about the reordering of loves. Pre-daughter, pre-getting married, I mean, running was your, sounds like, Primary love or one of them, like where you you would pour as much of yourself into it as as possible. And I imagine, just as a competitive athlete, that's something that you still want to do. But what does your relationship to running look like at this stage of your life? I mean, being a mom, you are a full time professor. You're also still a damn good athlete, and I imagine have goals that you want to go after in the sport. And I'd just love to understand how you relate to it at this point of your life.
0: Well, thanks. Uh, I don't know. I'm still. <laughs> I feel like I'm still trying to figure this out. Um, I. I don't know. People talk about how they struggle to get out the door sometimes for runs. That it takes a lot of motivation, and I still don't have that issue because I just love it so much, and it's always something that I enjoy, even the hard runs. And so every day, I'm motivated to get to get out, um, and just train. Like I am so excited by putting in big efforts and, and trying to see what I can do. And that's still something that has captured my imagination. But I think in the past I used to think about running when I wasn't running. (laughs) Uh, and now I do that less. So I have these blocks of time that I'm going to get out. And then the rest of the time, I'm not really thinking about it. And there's kind of a, when you have a lot of things on your plate, um, there's a kind of presentism to that. Like you have to, you can't do a lot of dream casting and wondering about, I don't know, workouts and like making big plans because you're just trying to get through everything that you have on your plate. And I think that can be good and bad. Like, the good thing is I'm not dwelling on particular workouts anymore because I don't have time to do it. But the bad thing is I don't necessarily know where I'm going. So people have recently been asking me, what's my next big race? And it is, I just have a hard time, I don't know, even anticipating what I'm doing tomorrow when I'm trying to get through everything that I have to do, um, So I just really need to lock in on something, just like set aside some time to still dream big about my running, because right now I feel a little aimless because I have so many things to do.
1: Do you work with a coach or is your training in racing largely self-directed?
0: Oh my goodness. Well, if you looked at my training, you would know that I'm not currently working with a coach. Um, I, yes, I do. I've worked with coaches in the past, um, and I, I loved it. Um, I think it was a really good experience. Um, I admire all the coaches that I've had, but I've also running has never been, or my own running has never been. Positioned in the kind of way that I can take advantage of having a coach. So, the last time I had a coach, I was also coaching cross country and track team, and I would jump in their workouts all the time. And so, I would say, I mean, I'm doing everything that the coach tells me, but also like this extra repeat two mile workout and like other things like that. Or, I would have this rule with my coach that if my husband ever wanted to go for a run, then I would do that instead of whatever was on the sheet. And so, it what it worked out to being was that i wasn't super coachable um but yeah it's it's definitely to my detriment like i just love to pound tempo runs and so i do them like <laughs> every other day if i can yeah
1: let's talk about when running first came into your life what are your earliest memories in the sport
0: uh well i guess my earliest memories were just running around the neighborhood with my friends. Um, I also did a lot of local races and I always had, I guess, a lot of attention for performing well in those, but I was definitely a generalist when it came to sports. So I was serious about soccer. I was serious about basketball and softball and swimming, (laughs) volleyball. Uh, and I played all of those sports, uh, even through graduating um, high school. So I definitely, the thing that I was good at in all of those sports, the common denominator was, was definitely the running, mm-hmm. but it was, yeah, I guess in the background. Um, yeah.
1: Was there something different about running relative to those other sports in terms of how it made you feel?
0: Uh, yes. Uh, it was freeing. And I think it's also something, if you're good at it, there's a kind of natural affirmation that comes from it. And so I drew a lot of confidence from my ability to outrun people. Um, I wasn't the biggest girl on the field. And I would get knocked down a lot, but I could out, outrun people. And the same thing with basketball. I was always one of the smaller people on the court, and I would get bullied a little bit. I was actually like a little bit short with respect to other competitors, like elbow height. Um, <laughs> and so I would leave the court with like br- my braces. I would always have my braces hit by elbows. But when I was running, that was like the thing that I could do. Um, there was freedom in it. I... Yeah, I just had a lot of confidence.
1: You ran to get away from the elbows? Yeah. When did you first start to show some talent in the sport?
0: I think probably in middle school. Mm -hmm. uh, We had this race every year. It was called the Red Ribbon Run, and it was a 5K. And I started competing in it when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 and started being the high school team when they would compete in it and so the coach started talking to me and the high school coach and and asking if i wanted to become a runner and i was interested uh, but yeah i just i loved the competition i loved those races every year
1: are you a competitive person in other areas of your life or did running bring that out in you
0: yeah so I'm not sure. So people have so many different definitions of competition that I've usually said yes to that question, but I'm not sure that I am. Like I'm definitely an achiever and I'm an achiever in every sphere of life. Um and running is just one of the spheres that I've tried to succeed in. But it's not necessarily about the competition. Like it's not really comparative with other people, except insofar as I want to hit whatever threshold of success is in that thing.
1: How would you define competition?
0: Yeah. So I would say that it's a kind of striving together. So that's the definition. I just think that there are virtuous forms and unvirtuous forms of competition. So oftentimes when people say competitive, what they mean is envy, uh, the kind mm-hmm. of negative comparison and, people will often talk about how comparison is the thief of joy, like that kind of competitive spirit. And it's just not the case because there are so many other pro-social productive forms of comparing yourself to other people. Um, and so there's another kind of competition that's not really directed at, it's not a kind of unhappy self-assertion. It's not a kind of, discontent at other people's successes um it's kind of outdoing your competition um and i think that's a virtuous form of competition and it can make us better uh emulation is another word for it maybe um and yeah so i try, i try to be competitive in that way um, but yeah envy envy creeps in sometimes
1: No, I I appreciate that perspective. This is something that I give a lot of thought to myself. And the way that I've come to think about it, or at least how I think about it now, is if I'm – just to use running as one example – if I'm trying to be the best that I can be on a given day in a race, for example – what, what is traditionally known as a competitive environment. It isn't necessarily about seeing if I can, you know, beat all the other people there, or win my age group or whatever it can be. It's it's just to be the best that I can be on that day. Um, and, and this hasn't always been the case for me. I've definitely had a, a different relationship to it in the past. But the way I think about it is if I can do that, it can – Inspire the other competitors to do the same and get the best out of, of themselves. And then in turn, like what that does for, for me is it pushes me to want to be a better version of of myself. And it's just this, this almost like working together, like a, a lot of the Kenyan runners, the way they talk about competition is like they're, they're with their colleagues and they're working together to kind of achieve this thing. And I, I really have come to just appreciate competition in, in that way, not so much as a, as a, an activity that is full of, you know, envy or, or lust or, you know, trying to, you know, finish higher than someone else necessarily.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, competition can be amazing. It I mean it always gets the best out of you. It's really hard to push yourself independently. And there are so many awesome forms. But I when I hear that phrase like comparison is the thief of joy. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. Like, it doesn't have to be envious. It doesn't have to be something that involves your undoing. It can be something that is, uh, I don't know, part of a like a healthy community where we celebrate each other's successes. Mm-hmm.
1: Going back to your running, did you run collegiately?
0: I did. Yes. <laughs> uh, Where'd you go to school? I went to William and Mary. Okay. Uh, yes, and I chose the school on the basis of. So I went to a big high school where there weren't a lot of people who went on to run in colleges. So I did not understand the process at all. So I made my college decision and then I reached out to the coach. So I did, um, yeah. And William and Mary is wonderful. Uh, at the time it was Alex Gibby and Kathy Newberry, uh, were the Mm -hmm. head coaches, um, And yes, I I mean, I I really enjoyed my time there. I was only on the team for the first two years, and then I went in the trail direction.
1: I wanna talk about that, but let's rewind to when you got to William and Mary. You didn't choose the school because you wanted to run there necessarily. That sounds like it came after the fact. What were those initial conversations with Coach Gibby and Coach Newbery like when you wanted to join the team?
0: Yeah, uh, they were actually great. So. Kathy sent me the training packet the summer before, and I did every workout she prescribed, but also I did training in the way that I understood training at the time, which would make sense to an ultra runner maybe, but not to someone who is probably coming onto a collegiate team. So I handed her my training book, and there were runs where it would be the workout, And then I would say, okay, this day I ran for, I don't know, maybe three and a half hours. It was on the trail. And I'm not sure how long we were skipping rocks. (laughs) And then these bears got us off course. So I don't know how long it was. And Kathy was like, what is this? Like, I've never seen anything (laughs) like this. Um, And so when I transitioned onto the team, it was my mileage was lowered um, and The intensity went up and these kind of meandering adventures that constituted my running in the past on soft surfaces uh, were suddenly gone. So I was very injury prone in my first year, I guess, unsurprisingly. Um, And so I kind of found my way into a a new direction.
1: Well, let's go back to pre-college. I'm interested in these long meandering runs. Is this something that you sort of fell into on your own? Were you encouraged by someone else who took you along for adventures? I'd love to just understand how someone in their, I mean, mid to late teens thinks that it's, you know, super fun to just be out in the woods for hours on end running, skipping rocks and doing whatever.
0: Yeah, I think it is a function of the town that I grew up in. So I'm from northern New Jersey. Uh, when I say that, everyone thinks city, but it's actually an Appalachian town in the northwest corner of New Jersey. So even in recess in, <laughs> in school or gym class, we would sometimes run on the Appalachian Trail. And it was really neat. We would see through hikers, um, and I just became really comfortable with trail running. So it's a kind of town where there's not a lot to do. I mean, a lot of kids get into trouble there. And if you're not getting into trouble, you're probably an outdoorsy person. And so there just wasn't a lot to do. So we would just go and play on the trails just all day. Uh, Yeah.
1: So that's just what you knew. It's just what
0: I knew. I didn't know that there's like something distinct called trail running. It was just part of running.
1: Was the transition to college difficult because of that? You just described how on the running side of things, your mileage came down, the intensity went up, you dealt with some injuries, but also just, you know, assimilating to life in Virginia coming from rural northern New Jersey. Was that a huge culture shift for you?
0: Uh, it was definitely a shift. It was, I guess, big, big fish, small pond to different pond. I don't know. It <laughs> like, I... It would be hard to say that Williamsburg is a big city because it's not. It's uh, colonial. There are oxen walking through campus because of the colonial reenactment. So it's kind of like 1693 and on half of campus. I guess one of the struggles in transitioning to college was, well, so on the first day of orientation, um, they said to us, hey, if you were valedictorian of your class, raise your hand. And it's uh, the whole freshman class uh, is sitting in this auditorium and like all of us raised our hands. And they're like, okay, so you're not special in this respect. Okay. (laughs) And so just all of us, we were all like achievers. we were all class presidents and just used to, naturally doing well in school and so transitioning to a place where everyone was type a and everyone was more of like an achiever mindset i I guess that was probably the bigger transition than running like running still Mm -hmm. felt like that thing that i I don't know it's like it feels like that's what my body likes to do this is my way of being in the world this is like the familiar thing and then I was just surrounded by people who had a similar kind of mindset and orientation. And that was, that was shocking, I guess.
1: Was it challenging or was it inspiring?
0: It was probably both. I mean, probably. So the challenging thing is just, you don't know how to measure your own Worth. I mean, I -hmm. shouldn't have been measuring myself with respect to my performance compared to other people anyway. And so that was probably a lesson I need to learn. The inspiring thing, or I guess positive thing, was just meeting so many like-minded friends. Uh, I mean, when you're a very serious person and a serious student, you don't have a lot of peer density in a rural school. And then going to William & Mary, I met just, I mean, people who are still my closest friends and who understand me really, really well because they have a similar drive. I didn't feel like I had to explain myself.
1: What did you go to William & Mary to study? Was philosophy on your mind at that point, or were you pursuing something else?
0: No, I did not know what philosophy was. Um, I went to college to study neuroscience, Um, And the reason I did that was in high school, I participated in these brain bees and brain bees are like spelling bees, but you answer questions about the brain. And so I would participate in these competitions and it was all exciting, like the new frontier, learning about, I don't know, mental life and things. And so when I went to college, I was so excited to be a neuroscience major But liberal arts requirements, uh, you know, core required courses made me take a philosophy course. And I found out that the questions that they were asking in there were more the questions that I had of the mind. I wanted to know about the human person and I wanted to know about, you know, what we ought to be doing and what's our nature. And those were less biological questions and more philosophical
1: And was that your freshman year that you put yourself on that path towards studying philosophy?
0: It was... My first philosophy class was sophomore year.
1: Okay. And on the running side of things, you mentioned how you didn't run past your second year at William & Mary. What went into that decision, and how did you break it to the coaches?
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay, so the reason I didn't run past my first year was this. So in high school, my mom was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer and she came out the other side of it. And so after my freshman year was her third year of being in remission from cancer. And I like grand gestures. Like I like to be able to do something. And I was so proud of her that I ran 100 miles as a fundraiser for the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. And ovarian cancer is is a cancer that is really hard to detect. And so when you find it, it's almost too late. And so I wanted to raise awareness. And so I did this run and it was really fun. Um, I did it through my hometown. I set up a course and my mom crewed me and it was just wonderful. But After the fact, it was in the local newspapers that I had done this thing, and they included my time. And someone reached out and said, you know, this is a sport, and you ran one of the top 10 times in the country for this past year. And so I found out that it wasn't just something that people might do philanthropically, it was actually a sport. And so I became super curious, because William & Mary is in Virginia, there are... There's a really active trail scene there, the Virginia mm-hmm. Happy Trails Running Club. So I started to reach out to some of them and got curious about jumping in races. And I just couldn't go back after that.
1: So you had no idea that ultra running was, was this thing, I mean, much less a, a competitive pursuit, but that people could just go out and run extremely long distances in one go until you decided to make this grand gesture for your mom and, and raise some money for, you know for her cause.
0: Yes. And it wasn't something that I came up with like ex nihilo. I had a cross country coach who ran 100 miles for Make-A-Wish Foundation. And so Mm -hmm. I just thought it was something you could do philanthropically. And it was something that appealed to me. And I just thought like, well, this is an older guy and he did it. So how hard could it be? Um, But then I found out it was a sport.
1: How did you prepare for that 100-mile run when you were in college? Did you have it in your mind that, okay, that's a long way. I need to build up and do some percentage of that distance, or you figured you could just do it based on whatever training you were doing at the time?
0: I did it based on the training I was doing at the time. I think my longest run was 17 miles prior, uh, and I I regularly doubled because, again— my own hometown, <laughs> the only thing that we did was was run around so i I did have a seventeen mile training run, and then I had a lot of those other sort of meandering runs of unknown quantity uh, and quality the rock skipping runs so but I mean it worked out i I definitely went out too hard and it it was difficult. It, yeah, it was definitely hard, but it was a fun challenge.
1: Do you remember what you ran for a time? Not that it's super important, I'm just curious.
0: Oh my goodness. I think it was 15 something. Holy 15 cow. or something. Yeah. And, and you
1: were what like 19 or something? 18, 19?
0: Yeah, 19 or 20, I think.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Thanks. How did you feel during it?
0: I felt Well, at times I was really giddy because all of my running friends came out and they would run different sections of it with me. And it was so fun. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so we would just be running and having snacks and my family was there. But I do remember, you know, at some point it ceased to be fun. And then I was just alone, (laughs) still out there with, I don't know, like 40, 50 miles to go. Um, So, yeah, it definitely was hard. But I do remember... Out, being out for a run later that week. So it didn't, I mean, it didn't cripple me or anything. So, yeah.
1: How long after that was it until you began to pursue ultra running as a competitive sport?
0: It was, I guess, I guess my junior year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the early days, there wasn't a lot of, it's not like you would go on, social media and hear about all these events, you would have to actively seek out the information on pretty rudimentary websites. And I didn't have peers yet in the sport, and so I would do maybe one a year and be satisfied with that. Uh, Yeah.
1: And when you started shifting your academic focus toward philosophy, how were you thinking about that pursuit and where you wanted to take it beyond your time at William & Mary?
0: Yeah. Did my parents set you up
1: to ask this question? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm a fellow philosophy major. (laughs) I've been asked this question many a time.
0: Yeah. I guess it's not a super straight career path. Uh, It's a very good question. And I don't think that I really thought it through. I don't So recently I was having a conversation with my older sister and she said, hey, I'm really proud of you for having a job. And I was like, what do you mean you're proud (laughs) of me? And she's like, well, mom and dad had their concerns (laughs) about how this was going to work out Uh, because what do you do with a philosophy degree? And the answer is you can do a number of things. I mean, I think academia is the traditional route um, and that's either in universities, or you could do other schools, uh, or really just having the ability to think clearly and, and write clearly is invaluable in so many different fields, which you know, uh, because you've taken it a different direction than I have. But I, I thought all I wanted to do was just go, keep going to school. So mm-hmm. graduate school was my objective. And I figured I love school, I'll just keep studying, and I'll figure that out when the time comes.
1: Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear you describe that, because my parents had similar questions for me when I told them that I was majoring in philosophy. And to be fair, I had changed my major because it was easy enough to do like half a dozen times before I finally settled on philosophy and I decided on philosophy because one I had a professor who became my advisor that I really liked and I just wanted to keep taking his classes and I got to a point where I think I was seven philosophy classes in and I needed 12 for the major and I said well I might as well I might as well get a degree in this because it's the path of least resistance in in a lot of ways but I was different than you in that I really didn't like school and the academic side of things and I would tell my parents just to appease them that oh I I'm going to go to law school or maybe I'll get a master's in counseling or or something like that. But all I really wanted to do was run. I was like, well, I'll I'll figure it out. Like somehow I'll figure it out. But, but to your point, um, it, I mean, I think it all worked out because I don't have like a a narrow interest in like philosophers or like actual philosophy, I guess. I I mean, maybe I do, but I, I definitely don't and didn't look at it super closely. But, it did teach me how to think critically, how to pay attention to things, how to ask the right questions, how to form an argument, and I mean, I use a lot of those skills in in what I do. I think on this podcast and with my newsletter, and certainly in you know in my my coaching as as well. So um, for any parents listening to this, as children <laughs> may be going down the path of philosophy. Um, it's a it's a, I mean I'm, we're we're biased, right? I mean, you teach <laughs> philosophy, I majored in it, but it's a great path, uh, and and you could do a number of different things with it.
0: Yes, for sure, and I think honestly. Most people, when they're wary of my philosophy, they think it's like astrology or something. Mm -hmm. I don't think they know what the discipline is. Like one time I was at a Thanksgiving dinner and someone asked me what philosophy was. And then another person jumped in and said, oh, it's uh, when you help uh, deliver peace at wartime. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we just have no cultural imagination (laughs) for what I'm doing. So I don't know.
1: In your undergrad years, was there a particular type of philosophy that you were interested in or were you just on this path of, I'm just going to kind of keep moving forward and pieces will fall into place?
0: Yeah. So initially the things that got me in were questions of mind and body. So that's traditionally metaphysics. But as I started taking more classes, I loved ethics. I loved it right away. Um, I loved asking questions about the good life and flourishing and suffering and what are good making features of a human. Um, and I'm kind of like a, I guess, dispositionally a sort of morally serious person. And so Mm -hmm. I was just asking questions that I asked on a regular basis in my own life. Um, and so those were the questions that really appealed to me.
1: Were there a lot of women in your undergrad philosophy program? nope. (laughs) I didn't think so because there weren't that many in mine. How did that make you feel?
0: Yeah, I honestly don't think about it that much. And I realize that's coming from like, maybe a place of privilege that I've never been taught that women can't contribute in those ways. Like, I get that question a lot. And I've had students even say to me, that philosophy seems more hospitable because of a discipline because I'm there but honestly when i'm asking questions when i'm inquiring with people like the it's just not front and center in my mind so i i mean so recently i came across a letter from one of my high school teachers and she was saying Sabrina was the only girl in this whatever history class. And I was thinking back at that class and I was like, I don't even think I was aware of that. Like, it just uh, wasn't something that, I don't know, seemed important. Um, Yeah.
1: Is there a barrier of entry for women when it comes to studying philosophy?
0: I wanna say yes. Because I think that there are certain qualities that are probably gendered, uh, just, I don't know, when you think of people who are more argumentative, for example, Mm -hmm. that's typically a more masculine quality. And I mean, not universally, but I think that's generally the case. Um, I'm not an argumentative person. I don't know if that's gendered or what, but I mean, it could be hard to figure out where my place is. Or even just having an undergrad where all of my teachers were male, it's hard to imagine yourself like being in that position sure. if you've never seen it. Um, I also think one conversation that I had when I was applying to graduate schools was one of my mentors said, Gave me a list of schools not to apply to because he said these are not departments that are safe for women at this point, just because of some of the men who are abusing their power in those positions. And so, I think that's not something that probably a young man would think about, but that's something that right. I had to think about.
1: I, I appreciate you sharing that perspective. One thing I want to talk about with you is this intersection of of running and philosophy. I mean, for for me, who does someone who does not know you that well, I mean, that's sort of where, you know, I I see a lot of your work intersecting, and it's in some of the columns that you write for I Run Far. But as a young runner in high school and college, these questions that really pulled you toward eventually studying philosophy, were they things that you would think about when you were out on a meandering run through the woods? Or were those two things separate? Oh,
0: yeah. (laughs) It was definitely something that I would think about and honestly at the beginning of my philosophy journey if you want to call it that mm-hmm. I like to keep my two spheres distinct like I didn't want to do philosophy of sport because I wanted to be a good philosopher and I wanted to be a good athlete and I didn't want to be a pretty good philosopher for an athlete or just be talking about I don't know what I thought was like jock topics or something. I don't know. Like I wanted to do the metaphysics and I wanted to do like the difficult arguments. um, And so I wanted to keep them distinct, but I was given this advice that you should do philosophy. That's kind of close to home. So the sorts of Mm -hmm. questions you should pursue are the ones that are important and personal to you. And it just is the fact that when I'm thinking about running, I'm often thinking about ethics. Like, I'm often thinking about, I mean, I write in virtue ethics. I write in what are the qualities that are good-making features of a person that help us live a flourishing life. And then when I'm running, I'm practicing them. Like, I'm thinking about whether or not I'm persevering and what kinds of dispositions I'm reinforcing and what are my frailties. Like, so an example of this is there's a vice called either, it's called... Acedia. Some people pronounce it acedia, but it's the vice of, that's traditionally known as sloth. Mm -hmm. And in the tradition, it has two manifestations. So there's like the laziness side, but then there's also the busyness side when you have just kind of a frenetic pace and you can't stay tracked on the right kinds of work. Um, And I was seeing this in my running on a regular basis. Like when running got hard. I had a really hard time persevering. I had a really hard time staying on it. And I just wanted to be doing anything else, like any other task, just staying busy. Or I couldn't focus on paces and I would just want my mind to wander off. And that's a vice. And it was like, it's crazy when you're doing the theory of something and then you're watching it in yourself. And hopefully, I don't know, like you have some sort of insight that can Um, like you can apply that kind of academic training to making yourself a better athlete. And I was thinking about like, what a shame it was that we have this whole tradition of asking questions about what the good life is and what suffering is, what pain is, what qualities make a life worthwhile. And these are not conversations that we're having currently in the sport. So, I mean, part of it is like, a lot of these topics have made my life richer and have made me feel less alone in the particular struggles that I have, just having a vocabulary to describe them. And so I want to share that with other people.
1: And that's, I mean, quite frankly, what I love about your writing, because I have a lot of just similar questions that are running through my head. And more often than not, there isn't someone that I can talk to about those things because you kind of think you're you're crazy or it's just not that important as it relates to, you know, maybe this pursuit of running or how that contributes to the good life. But then I I read your columns and I'm like, oh, like someone else is out there, like asking a lot of these, these similar questions. And then I end up, you know, sharing some of my own reflections in my newsletter and linking off to your column. So I thank you so much for just sharing your philosophy in a, in a public way.
0: Well, thanks. Yeah, that means a lot. And I, I always, that's always so exciting when I see it in your, in your newsletter,
1: to shift the conversation back to running for a little while. Like one thing I've always admired about you is that you seem to prioritize national championships and representing the U S on international teams, which I mean, is, is not the norm for a lot of ultra runners, um, national championships more often than not world championships, even almost seem like an afterthought compared to some other races. Like why have those events been really important to you?
0: Yeah. Well, I think part of it is it's really exciting to run for the U.S., and i we don't get those opportunities very much. And so it seems like an act of gratitude if you can take your skill and apply it in a way that I don't know, like represents your country, that seems like a really special opportunity. And it's so surprising to me that more people don't take those opportunities. As far as participating in the national championships, some of that is happenstance. Uh, I lived in Texas when I went to Baylor, and the 100-mile national championships was a couple hours away. And so in the sort of invisible training or having minimal impact on my family, I competed in that race four times. And then my dad lives in upstate New York, and that's where the national 50 mile trail championships was. And so Mm -hmm. I was able to see my dad and participate in that race. So it's not that I've been specifically targeting national championships necessarily. It's just that those are the ones where I feel at home, (laughs) but yeah, I do. It just baffles me that people don't, don't want to, I don't know, target those races as much.
1: Yeah, I've I've always wondered why, because my background is in, you know, more traditional running cross country track, that sort of thing. And pretty much anyone who has an opportunity to compete at a, a national championship or represent the US somewhere, I mean, they're clamoring for it. And I've seen just in the Trail and Ultra World and, and Mountain World as well, sometimes it's, you know, trying to like beg people to to come on the team so that they can actually field a full squad. And I've just never understood that about that side of the sport. So I've always appreciated athletes such as yourself, such as Mario Mendoza, such as Joe Gray, who seem to have done like quite a few of those um, year in and year out for whatever reason. But when the opportunity to represent our country presents itself, I, I mean, it seems like you don't really hesitate to take it as long as it kind of fits in for your schedule.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I honestly think it's going to change because we're getting so many crossovers, just even in the last mm-hmm. couple of months, uh, road and track athletes are coming over. And I think they're going to change the scene um, and put more motivation for competing in those events
1: One of the other things I've always admired about you as a a runner is like, you don't strike me as a a one trick pony. Like, yes, you focus on longer events, but you race trails, you race roads, you race mountains, you run flat, you run long, you race relatively short. Um, Where do your main interests lie in that regard?
0: Yeah, well, I think my strengths are probably runnable roads, uh, 100K and up. Uh, I wouldn't even say, I don't know, 100K seems a little bit short. Uh, for my skill set. But I like to do a lot of the other events, like the trail and the shorter events, because so much of running just feels social for me, really, uh, and getting to see peers. So I used to do a lot of the 24-hour events, but at the time, it wasn't a very popular event. And so it wasn't as competitive and I didn't have like a core group of friends. But when I switched over and started running the Lake Sonomas, which is a horrific match for my skill set, <laughs> I just had the opportunity to see these people who I admire and who are my friends. Um, and so it really grew my friends, but I, I just haven't been performing at the level I'd like to when I go to those.
1: How do you think your way through a 24-hour race?
0: Yeah. Well, so you don't think your way through a 24-hour race. I'd say the first 100 miles, you just think about anything else. Um, So you try not to be present. You certainly don't think about the racing or the competition. You just have a good time. Um, And so usually before a 24-hour event, I'll read something and just think about it. Um, or have some paper that I'm working on and work through those arguments and let them just like wash over me but not think about the race at all and then once you get there once you've hit 100 well then you only have what 50 something miles left and you can focus in on the competition I guess um, see how you're feeling and then strategize how you're going to tackle the end of it. I don't know how people pay attention for 24 hours, but I can't do it. And so I, I just eliminate the competitive part for the first part.
1: How does that mindset differ in a long mountain ultra where you're covering a set distance, not necessarily running for a set amount of time and the terrain is much more varied and there's just a lot more stimuli around you?
0: Yeah. So in a trail race, there's, you end up just having less time for reflection. Uh, You end up having to think about just really managing yourself and um, you can't really so much get into the rhythm. So (laughs) you're thinking about paces and thinking about when you're going to take in water or when the next aid is. And so there's less uh, of an ability to just go away uh in those events so they're they're honestly more mentally taxing i would say than the 24-hour events
1: interesting yeah
0: but in the 24-hour events i mean you have in most of them they're small loop courses and you're just passing by your aid station and so it just doesn't require as much foresight like for the trail events it's like well you pass this aid station you're probably not going to see your crew for another 15 miles and I don't know. So there's, it seems like there's more strategy or other things going on. But in 24 hour events, I get some of my best thinking.
1: Do you have any future plans to get back to doing 24 hour events? I mean, when they happen, obviously, or do you want to try and shift your running focus toward other objectives?
0: So I would love to. And I've told my husband that it's his least favorite of the events. Uh, we started with that in our marriage, like we started with the twenty-four hours, and now when I do hundreds and below, he's like, "Thank you for choosing the short event." Um, <laughs> it's all like contextual. Uh, I would love to. I honestly have never done one on a track. I've only done road ones and large loop ones, and I love tracks. I would love to just eliminate all of like the bumps of roads and um, have that softer surface and see what I could do there. So something like a desert solstice, I was actually registered for that in 2019, just before I got pregnant. And so I didn't ultimately get to do it, but I would like to come back.
1: How do you see your relationship with running Just the pursuit of it, but also the competitive side of it evolving in the coming years?
0: Yeah. Well, I really hope it evolves. (laughs) Uh, And I kind of am worried about the ways in which it's going to evolve. So I think over the past year, having been removed from the sport for the pandemic and for pregnancy, having that. And then at the same time, working on projects in my research relevant to flourishing and suffering and virtue and vice, being removed at the same time as doing that really has gotten into my head and um, changed me. It's changed my view of running. It's changed like how healthy I think certain aspects of running are. And I think it would be wrong if it didn't. But I just worry as I continue down this road, like, asking questions of flourishing, like, and, like, whether that's going to change my competitive mindset. Like, I am already prone to, I guess, overthinking <laughs> a little bit. Um, and and I kind of miss the days when my running was naive. And I didn't mm-hmm. ask questions of well how am I transforming my character in certain ways or how is this amenable to a long life or what are the compromises I'm making and community um those sorts of questions I think I don't I don't know if they're a net positive for the kinds of success I would have in racing I hope that they are uh but yeah I guess those are just worries that I have
1: yeah, I, I asked that question because I've picked up on that in some of your columns for I Run Far. Like you could see that in, in your writing, like you were thinking through your relationship with the the sport and, and what it was and maybe what you want it to be moving forward. And two words that you mentioned that I'd, I'd love to dig into a little bit deeper are flourishing and and suffering. And I'd love to understand like how you think about those two things as they relate to this pursuit of ultra running?
0: Yeah. So flourishing uh, is a word that I've taken from Aristotle. Um, Aristotle asks the question at the beginning of Nicomachean Ethics. He says, you know, what is the end of man? Like, what are we for? Um, And he arrives at a good that is self-sufficient good, uh, something that is good, in and of itself and, um, as an end and what he arrives at is this concept of happiness or flourishing. It's this kind of rich kind of, um, yeah, it's just happiness, but suitable to one's nature. Um, the word he uses is eudaimonia. (laughs) It Mm -hmm. means good spirit and, it consists of, it's an activity in accordance with virtues. And so you're living this happy life that is suited to your nature and it consists of good making features that are, that help you achieve that end. And so those good making features are qualities that we typically speak of as virtues. Um, and so those are things like justice, temperance, prudence, uh, courage, right. Um, And so, yeah, in a full life, uh, suitable to the sort of thing that we are, we should have these qualities and then we'll flourish, right? Uh, And I've wondered about, so in the classical tradition, they often ask the question of what role athletics can play in the good life. And typically the way it is described is that it has a role in character development in sort of Mm -hmm. helping us to be more well-ordered such that we can flourish long-term, but they also express kind of like a concern that if you are having like an outsized focus on athletics, that it can be bad both physically for your constitution, but also for your character. Like there are kinds of, there are ways of participating in sport that don't form you in the right way. Um, and so I've wondered about my relationship with running in terms of the sort of life that I want to have and and in terms of the sort of life that's suited to what you know what it means to be a human and flourish and I just don't think sports has been really an unqualified good in my own formation. I mean there mm-hmm. are certain qualities that are reinforced that are not like, I mean, envy is the big example that I give um, or, you know, a kind of intemperance, like having an outsized affection for sport that crowds out other features of my life or um, doesn't make me a good member of my community. So in asking the question of what flourishing is, like what a good life would be constituted of, I've started to inspect the role that running has on my life, and I don't know how well, at least in the dosage that I do it in, in ultra running, I don't know if it really supports that kind of life.
1: Yeah, I've asked similar questions. I do wonder if it can be too much of a good thing sometimes, and and not even just ultra running specifically and it doesn't even have to be running i mean i think that could apply to many different types of of athletic pursuits but i've i've wondered that as well like this you know this thing that you know looking at it or trying to look at it objectively has brought so many good things to our our lives whether it's introduced us to people taught us lessons um, helped us move along in some way but if it can become you know too much to the point where and, and speaking for myself like it's damaged relationships or it's damaged my body um, or you know it's taken me away from from other opportunities i mean I, I I appreciate that perspective it's something that I you know I think about every day if i'm being if i'm being honest with you
0: yeah and i I want to say that as someone like I love running and I mean Same. I mm-hmm. think that it's formed me in so many great ways and it's given me friends and community and Like, it's responsible for making me disciplined, but I also think we can't speak of sport as kind of this only source of of goodness in our life. Like, there are also bad qualities that are reinforced, and if we're going to accept the good ones, we have to address the bad ones, too.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, and... and Part of the reason I asked that question, too, is something I'm wrestling with now is, you know, I'm building up for my next marathon, something I haven't done in the last two years. So I think, like, having that period of time where I wasn't racing or, like, building up, it played a different role in my life, and I feel like a lot of good came from that as well. And I've noticed just after the last, like, eight weeks that I've been building up, there's, you know, some positives of that, but then there are other elements as well where I'm like, I don't know if I really like this anymore. Or if, you know, after I get through this race, if it's something that I want to continue doing on a regular basis, because I'm not sure at this point of my life that it's occupying a healthy space in it.
0: Yeah. Oh man. These are such hummus- bad like hard conversations to have. Because the things we celebrate in sport are like the peak performance often and mm-hmm. we don't ask like the role that athletics plays in most people's lives is not to be i don't know the top of the sport that like tippy end of performance and for most of us it's more of a mixed mixed bag i guess in the impacts it's having
1: Mm -hmm. i'm curious how you think about suffering it's a word that in ultra running specifically gets thrown thrown around like pretty cavalierly um but i mean even getting outside of, of just ultra running i mean we hear it all the time um you know willfully suffering or, you know, um, opening ourselves up to that. I'd love to just kind of get your take on this this concept of suffering and how you think about it in your own life.
0: Yeah. So suffering is, I think, a difficult concept for us as athletes because there are a lot of different concepts that are embedded in suffering and we don't really – we don't have, like, a very rich vocabulary for discussing the different uh, the different sides. So the rhetoric around suffering in our sport is often, like, no pain, no gain. Um, pain is weakness, leaving the body, <laughs> and mm-hmm. other things like that, which—
1: I had that T-shirt I, in high school.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see it all the time at cross-country races. And the problem with it is that it's just sort of— uh, it's not sensitive to the kinds of suffering that you're having. And so if what we're talking about when we say suffering is running through an injury uh, like that kind of pain, that's not a good kind of pain. I mean, it's not even, I mean, saying nothing about what it contributes to your life. It's just, it doesn't contribute to your performance either. It doesn't make you a tough person. Uh, it It's just, it's not good. And so, I want to set aside that. That's like a bad kind of pain. Mm-hmm. And then there are t- kinds of suffering that we choose and then kinds of suffering that sort of happen to us. So the kinds of suffering that we choose, I mean, you could use the word pain, but really just like a general kind of discomfort. Um, so say you're in a workout and you're doing a tempo and it starts to feel heavy. Uh, it starts to get really uncomfortable. And if you're a person who's new to the sport, you might think, oh, danger, danger, like something's wrong. Uh, but nothing's wrong. It's just the kind of, you know, edifying pain. It's a kind of, um, like chosen, um, suffering that supports the end. It supports the end of performance. It also supports the end of like being a, tougher person who's not super fragile and so that's good and then there are kinds of pains that are like or suffering that you don't choose and they just kind of happen to you so say um like loss of a loved one i know you lost your mom i also lost my Mm -hmm. mom it's not something that's chosen um but thankfully like having practice in sport, like having practice in that kind of staying with discomfort or staying with that suffering, can better equip us to walk through that time of suffering. Help us navigate it, right? Yeah, and so that's awesome. Uh, so I think sports can be great in that respect in helping you to suffer better, um, to be more buoyant or more resilient in those times. But I also think we need to address the problematic rhetoric that is like, Oh, pain just means you're tough. And I ran through a broken leg and that was awesome because it's not awesome. It's not awesome for your performance or, or your life.
1: I, I really do appreciate that perspective because I think in terms of suffering specifically, it gets just looked at in its own silo and like all suffering is, is positive or beneficial in some way, even though it's, you know, inherently hard and painful when you're going through it. But I think to your point it's like, not, not all suffering is good. Not all suffering is bad. It just depends on the context and then how you channel it. Yeah. Last question to wrap this one up. What is exciting you about running right now, whether it's your own pursuit about it or something happening in the sport in general?
0: Well, I'm excited by the fact that training is finally starting to click. So I I finally have momentum, and I'm starting to feel like myself in workouts again. And there was a long time when I felt sort of restricted by just kind of weaknesses that come with having a daughter and I don't feel impeded by those things again. And so, I don't know, I'm starting to get excited about workouts. Um, I get the nervous butterflies when I head outside again, because I'm not thinking, "Will my hips like hold up, but I'm thinking about what can I do today? Uh, So that's great. New horizons. Um, I guess I'm also excited about, it just seems like people in general are getting more excited about track and field than just like this small world. Like I'm getting more friends who are not runners asking me about track and field. And I don't know if that's just momentum around the Olympics or the fact that we're starting to figure out media better, but I like it. Running's cool again.
1: We will take that. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Sabrina, I've really enjoyed the last hour or so talking to you, and I thank you for coming on the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks
0: so much for having me.
1: All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. A big thank you to both New Balance and Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the show. The Fuel Cell Rebel V2 is my new favorite running shoe. It's super light, it's incredibly responsive, and offers good protection underfoot. I think it's the perfect workout shoe, and I will be using it all the time. Check it out today at newbalance.com and consider adding a pair to your rotation. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two, or maybe three of Gooders, and head over to Gooder.com/mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R.com/mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. A couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM ShakeOut social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.